Our great God, you are a God who reveals yourself to us. You speak. Enable us now to have ears that listen and shape and form us by your word and make us into a faithful community of your son, Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right. So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series in the book of Corinthians. And so we're looking at Paul's letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth. We said last week that Corinth was a church that was in Greece. It was a large metropolitan port city. It was very sophisticated, very affluent, very urbane. And Paul went there, spent about 18 months there, planted a church. It grew. Then he left. And a few months later, he gets contact with this church. And then he responds by writing them a letter. And what provoked his letter was that they had written him a list of questions that they wanted him to answer. And the questions were varied and many. There were some questions that they put to him about singleness, sex, and marriage. And then others that they put to him about food that had been offered to idols and others about spiritual gifts, other questions about the collection for the poor, others about a visit from the church leader, Apollos. And so they had put questions to him, and so he's responding to them. But he's not just responding to questions that were put to him. In this letter, he's actually responding to a negative report that he had received about them. It appears that the person who delivered the letter to him with all these questions basically said, look, you know, Paul, they came with all these questions, but there's, there's, there's some stuff you need to read between the lines. There's some junk happening in this church. And at the very top of their issues that Paul writes to address was division and quarreling and fights. He puts it like this in verse 11. He says, I've heard from Chloe's people. Chloe's people gave him a real earful. He said that there is quarreling, there is fighting, there are divisions among you. And so he writes this letter to address this problem of division and fights and quarrels in the church. Now, of course, this is not a new issue, right? This is one of the most common, the most persistent, the most unyielding problems in the church, and it always has been. It is fighting, it is quarreling, it is divisions within the church. The story is told of a man who went, and uh, he was about ready to jump off a bridge. And another man approached him and said, don't do it. And the man on the bridge said, yeah, but nobody loves me. And the other man said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And then he said, well, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, I'm a Christian. And he said, me too. Are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And he said, a Protestant. And the other man said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. And the man said, me too. And then the man said, a Northern Baptist or a Southern Baptist? And he said, Northern Baptist. And he said, me too. And then he said, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And the man on the bridge said, Northern Conservative Baptist. And the other guy said, well, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern region? And the man said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region. And the man said, me too. And then he said, uh, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1912? And the man said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, 
Council of 1912, and he said, die, heretic, and he pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you may have heard that joke. It was originally told by a comedian, Emo Phillips, and it was voted by an online survey as the best church joke of all time. And of course, the reason why it works is because so many of us are familiar with petty and absurd and ridiculous divisions that occur in the church. Divisions over ridiculous and stupid things. There's a recent survey on Twitter that asked people to share about the funniest church fights they had experienced. In the responses, they included this. One was an argument over the right length of a worship worship pastor's beard. They got in a fight about that. Another included a fight over over, uh, whether or not to use church land as a children's playground or a cemetery. There was another fight over whether or not to install dividers in the women's restroom. Should that even be a question? Just install the dividers, spend the money. And then there was a a dispute over whether to require the worship leader to keep his shoes on during the worship service. And for the record, I just think it's a good idea to do that. (laughs) And then there was another argument over using cran grape versus grape juice in communion. And then there was another fight over whether or not to allow deviled eggs at potlucks. (laughs) It's dangerous. Now, of course, churches don't just fight and quarrel over petty ridiculous issues like that. There's also more serious theological, philosophy of ministry, cultural issues that we oftentimes fight about. And the church, of course, has done this for, for, for ages and ages. Back in 1054, there was the great schism, the first major break in the, in the church between East and West, and it was over a very important theological clause in the Apostles' Creed. And then later in 1517, Martin Luther, of course, began the Protestant Reformation, which was another major rift between Catholics and what became known as the Protestant Church. And it was over issues of justification by faith and authority and who controls what. And so there's, there's divisions, there's quarrels, there's fights over petty things as well as over major theological issues. But whether petty or major, if you scratch below the surface of a lot of our issues, of a lot of our fighting and division, what you'll find is that it's always about something bigger than the presenting issue, isn't it? And of course, theologians, historians who study the Protestant Reformation, uh, who study even the schism of 15 or of 1054, will tell you that there was a whole lot of power struggles and cultural issues and jealousies and a lot of stuff going on below the surface that was mingled into the legitimate theological divides. And of course, it's true in our petty little stuff as well. And that's the kind of stuff that was happening at the church in Corinth. They were quarreling, they were divided, they were fighting over a variety of different issues. And what we're going to see is that there was also issues below the surface And Paul addresses the divisions and the issues, and he calls them and us to unity. And I want to see, I want you to see in the text how he does this and what he says. And let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 10, and look at what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you 
but that you all be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now stop there. We need to understand something of the backstory of what was happening in this church to understand the true nature of the problem. And so we need to delve for a little bit into the historical, kind of cultural background of this letter. And so we're going to do a little bit of background and history for about five, six minutes. And so put on your thinking caps and let's go. Are you ready? So one of the huge movements in the Greco-Roman world, and particularly in the city of Corinth, was a movement called sophistry in the first century. And when you hear sophistry, you think of the Greek word sophia, which is also translated into our English, wisdom. But when you hear wisdom, don't think, you know, pithy, clever aphorisms like you find in the book of Proverbs or some sage, wise, elderly person. No, in the first century Corinth, wisdom was all about oratory and rhetoric and sophistication and nuance. And the leaders of the sophistry movement were a group of men called sophists. And sophists, when you hear that, think speakers, orators, rhetoricians, those who could turn a phrase, think those who could get up and speak, you know, publicly and wax eloquently, think, you know, rappers and dancers, don't think that. But, you know, they were, they were rhetoricians. And what would happen is, these sophists would enter into a city like Corinth and they would seek to gain a following. And the reason why is because there was both money and fame wrapped up in a successful sophist. And so they would come in and they would send out a bunch of invitations. They'd try to fill a stadium like this. This is a very famous stadium in Greece from the ancient world. And they would send out invitations, they would stand there on the stage, and they would try to wax eloquently and do all of their rhetoric and, and, and be impressive, and, and they would talk on subjects ranging from civic life to, you know, theology to the gods to ethics or, or whatever. And if they were impressive, if their performance was good, then people in the audience would start sending their children to go be trained by the sophist so that they could earn the, 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 the art of rhetoric and oratory because this was a big deal in the first century. Now, in addition to speaking well, it was also very important for a sophist not just to speak good, but to look good. And so oftentimes in their schools of rhetoric, they would have a gymnasium where they would work out and they'd get all cut and they'd look all lean and good because they'd want to look like the gods, you know. And uh, because what was important was not just eloquent speech, but also bodily presence. That was the phrase they use. And it's interesting, later in Paul's letters, you remember what he says. He says, when I came to you, they, they were actually looking down on him because he didn't speak with eloquence and he had weak bodily presence. You know, as uh, the legends about Paul have circulated, you know, people say that he was short, which I guess some people found unattractive. I think they're wrong. I think it's very attractive. He had a big hooked nose and, you know, baldy head. And he would go there, he'd be a little bit weak and fearful and trembling. And they say, oh, he's so mighty in his letters, but he's weak in his bodily presence. But this was very important to them, sophistry. And if a sophist was popular 
then uh, they might even have marble statues of them erected around the city as a testament. It was a, basically a status symbol. Man, if somebody, this is a, a marble statue of one of the well-known sophists from the first century. And I was kind of thinking, actually, it'd be nice to get a marble statue of myself, put it out there in Hermosa. <laughs> but it was about status. And disciples of the sophists, get this, they would be really competitive. So sophists and their disciples who were in their classroom would get really, really competitive. And so certain sophists would wax eloquently about themselves, but they'd also speak disparagingly of others, and their disciples would do the very same thing. And so if you were a disciple of, let's say, Rufus, and you were following Rufus around, and Rufus was over there, uh, you know, waxing eloquently, you know, with his cut physique and whatnot, some of the disciples of, let's say, Titus would kind of trail behind, and they would, they would try to pick out little uh, phrases that were off or something that was wrong, and they would start ridiculing, making fun of, of Rufus, and then they would say, Titus is way better, you know, you, you're bad, you know, Rufus is nasty, you know, Titus, Titus, he's our man, or whatever, you put, you know, Titus or Rufus bumper stickers on your chariots or whatever, and there'd be all divided in the city on party lines based upon who your sophist was. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul and other preachers like Apollos come into the city of Corinth, and the kind of the, the first person that somebody in the Greco-Roman world, maybe not familiar with Jewish context or whatever, would identify them with would be a sophist. Because what did Paul, what did others do? They would go and they would try to create public forums where they would try to preach and speak about Jesus. And as I mentioned before, Paul, of course, was a little bit weak in bodily presence. He wasn't eloquent, but Apollos, on the other hand, now Apollos, we learned from the book of Acts, was eloquent. He was a great rhetorician. He was trained. He was intelligent. He was sharp. He was sophisticated. And so some people in the church would identify themselves with Apollos and others with Paul. Still others, it seems, were identifying themselves with Cephas. Maybe they heard about his prominence in the early church, his identification with Jesus, and they're like, we're Cephas' guy. And then, of course, there's always got to be somebody in the church who's like, well, we're you know, anti-authoritarian. We're not into Apollos and human leaders. We're into Jesus. I'm of Christ, you know. We're out in the bars, you know, hanging out and doing our thing. You know, we don't need human authority. We're into Jesus, you know. But do you see what's happening? The very same values that were manifesting themselves in the culture were being mirrored in the church. Now, aren't you glad the same divisive, uncivil attitudes that exist in American culture today, the same polarizations, the same name-calling and disparaging and identifying ourselves with one person over against another, one candidate maybe over against another, then speaking super disparagingly, aren't you glad none of that is mirrored in the church and its attitude and its divisions? Thank God. Oh, I guess it, it is. The problem that existed in Corinth exists in LA. It exists in America, it exists in our churches. We mirror the culture just as they mirrored the culture. And listen, it, in, the, in the first century Corinth, the, the real issue that Paul is addressing with them identifying with other teachers, the thing about it was if I identified with, let's say, Rufus, and Rufus had a statue and he had a name, like that was celebrity in the first century. 
Like, you're actually connecting yourself with the closest thing they had to celebrities in the church or in the city of Corinth, if you identified yourself with it. And when you attach yourself with that celebrity, the same dynamic happened when you attach yourself with your favorite sports team when they're winning. And what do you do? You know, the Lakers go out. It's been a long time, but let's just imagine back in the 80s and then the 90s, back when they had good teams. And do we have Laker fans in here? Like, are they still out there? Do you still exist? Come on, don't give up on them. But you know, if the Lakers win the, the championship, what do you say? You, you say, we won, we won, we won. No, you didn't. You had nothing to do with their win. But you identify with them, and it sort of makes you feel better. You'll even go mock, you know, and trash talk, you know, your, your friends who are other sports fans because their team didn't win. And you feel, you legitimately feel better about yourself because of your attachment with this team. And so too in the first century, they felt better about themselves by attaching themselves to a particular sophist. And what's going on there? Well, very often, of course, we feel insecure in our own selves, in our own skin. And so we have to attach ourselves to something that makes us feel better about ourselves. We don't have what it takes, but they do. So if I attach myself to them, then I'll get a little leg up. You see what I'm saying? There, there, was, there was something happening below the surface. Or let, let me just put it like this. There was a problem beneath the problem. Or let's illustrate it like this. If I can, oh, there we go. Let's go back. Above the surface are divisions and fights and quarrels. We'll just call them cues. Above the surface is all of these things, and you see this in churches, there's splits, there's divisions, there's quarrels, and usually the presenting issue is, is that we have theological differences, or, or, or we have differences regarding what good stewardship is. A good steward wouldn't spend their money on that, they would spend their money on this, or what an effective ministry program is. And so the presenting issue are these opinions we have about this side of the other thing, but very often if you scratch below the surface, you see that there are other issues at stake. Very often there are insecurity issues. To feel secure, we actually just need to be right. And that's why we attach ourselves to this candidate or that, or we listen to talk radio, because we always need to know that we're right and everyone else out there is wrong because that makes me feel safe and secure. And we do that same thing in church. Sometimes we feel arrogant. Sometimes there's an arrogance deep down inside, and we just think, quite frankly, we're better than other people, we're smarter than other people. And if you're smarter than other people when it comes to Bible, theology, church programs issues, you just have to be right and they have to be wrong because you're smarter and you're better than them. And there's an arrogance below the surface. So there might be insecurity, there might be arrogance. Sometimes there are hurt feelings. Maybe somebody else was put in a leadership position that you wanted. Maybe somebody else was recognized and honored for their service, for their contribution, and you were snubbed, you were neglected, and you feel hurt, and you feel upset. And so you're all up in arms about the church carpet, but if you scratch below the surface, there was something else going on. You know what I'm talking about? Of course, this happens in marriages too, of course, right? We act as if the real issue is that the dishes weren't done, but there's, stuff, there's been stuff building up for so long in your hearts and in your lives, and it was just waiting for this one thing. And you think if you're focused on the issue of doing the dishes, like you're looking at the wrong thing. There's something going on below the surface. 
That's how the human heart is. James put it like this. Remember what he said? Where do fights and quarrels come among you? And what was his answer? Do you remember what he said? He said, it was because of your deep commitment to the truth, to theology, because you care deeply about the Bible. He says, no, that's not where fights and quarrels come among you. Why they come is because you covet and you desire and you do not have, and because you do not have, you're upset and you're bitter and you get in fights. He says there's something going on below the surface, and it was happening in Corinth, it happens in our churches, and this is what Paul is addressing. And notice what he says. In the face of this big problem of divisions, and then the problems below the problems, the stuff that's surfacing in the hearts, notice he, he challenges it and he calls us into unity. And look at how he puts it in uh, verse 10. Well, we'll go, we'll go back. We're not ready for that yet. He says, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree... Just, I, I, have you ever read this? Some of you have read it so often you stopped reading it. Look at what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you all be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He says, I want you all to agree and I want you all to have the same mind and the same judgment. Have you ever just asked a simple question? What the heck is he talking about? What do you mean, I want you all to agree and have the same mind and same judgment? I mean, just look around you. You don't agree. There are so many disagreements in this room. There are political disagreements in this room. Some of you guys are like hashtag never Trumpers, and some of you guys think that he was an answer to prayer. There are some people in here that, that you, you, have, you have ethical you know, d- disagreements. Some of you feel like it's super important to eat, you know, ethically sourced, sustainably raised, organic, you know, grass-fed meats by animals that were treated very well, that all have a pedigree, and you know who their parents and where they came from. And, and some of you, you just want the cheapest, fastest, saltiest, greasiest thing you can get in your body. Give me calories, baby. There's differences when it comes to Christian liberties. I mean, some of you are teetotalers and some of you brew your own. There are differences in theology among you. Some of you are Calvinists, some of you are Arminians, some of you are like, what the heck are you talking about? There are uh, differences when it comes to how we read the Bible and what it means to have a literal, serious Bible interpretation. And we have fights over this stuff, you know? Is, is this a literal six-day genesis? Are these day ages? Or is this a, a, you know, a poetic structure that we can somehow fit you know, evolution into? And we have disagreements regarding theology and how we read the Bible. There are cultural differences among us. Some of you, like, on time means five minutes before this stuff begins. Some of you, on time, it means, what's it, about, you know, within 30 minutes or so. I mean, we're, we're good, Right? And so what do we do? Well, because there's stuff going on below the surface, because there's always something more going on, here, let's, uh, let's see if we can, I, I want another, yeah. I'm not, I'm not ready for that yet, but we can get into it. But because I'm, I'm, I'm working, I'm looking at my time, and I want to get through this text, we can jump in afterwards, okay? All questions are welcome, but come up afterwards. Let's, let's kind of get in here. But I, I want you to see what the text says. 
So he, he's calling them out for these divisions. He's calling them to unity. And if we don't agree, how can he call us to agree? How, how, can, how can we actually agree? And if you think about it, you think about the disagreements that exist just in this room. Like, just go outside of these walls and go to some other churches. And we disagree with other churches. And then think about Christians for the last 2,000 years in different times and places and different cultures. And we are so all over the map. We don't agree. So what on earth does Paul mean when he says, I want you all to agree? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, the language that he uses here when he says, all agree, be of the same mind and of the same heart, were actually stock phrases in political discourse in the Greco-Roman sort of political world. And it was never used to, to mean, I want you all to have the exact same opinion Instead, it was saying, I want you to all view each other essentially as being on the same team. Or we could put it like this, for Paul, unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all have the same ideas, the same Bible interpretations, because why, why is that a problem? Well, sometimes some of you, and sometimes I feel this way, we just think if you just, re- if we, the Bible's our thing that brings us all together. If you just read the Bible, we can all be on the same page. But what's the problem with that? Every Bible needs an interpreter. And of course, you know as well as I do that probably at least 20% of what you believe the Bible teaches is probably wrong. The problem is, is you just don't know which 20% it is. Now, some of you, you're like, no, that's the, I, I'm the one person in the history of the church that got it all right. And I just have to say, you're wrong, you're not. You're, you, it didn't arrive here in America in the 21st century with you. Like, we all have issues that we have misunderstandings, we don't know, we're missing, you know, and, and very often, as an interpreter of the Bible, we come to the text with a set of our own presuppositions and assumptions that have been shaped by culture, by family of origin, by our upbringing, and it affects how we read the Bible. It's a story of a group of African pastors and American pastors who sat down to read the story of Joseph. And they were in separate rooms, and they were asked to say, what is the main point of this story? The American pastors, they said the main point is so clear. After suffering, God will use suffering to ultimately bring us out of it so that we can be finally at the center of his plan for us and we can be in a position of significance. And the African pastor said that the meaning of this text is clear as day. God will preserve us in suffering so that when we get out of it, we can care for our families. It's the difference between reading the Bible in an individualistic culture and a community-oriented culture. And so unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we all agree about everything. Paul himself disagrees about a lot of things in the Bible. You'll see that. He confronts Peter to his face at times. You know, he challenges churches all the times in his letter. The Bible itself has some tension in it. Unity does not mean uniformity. But on the other hand, unity doesn't mean tolerance. What is tolerance? Well, there was the old tolerance, which was captured in that great phrase by Voltaire, who said, I may hate what you believe, but I will defend to the death your right to believe it. The new tolerance, of course, is not, I will hate what you believe, but defend your right to believe it. The new tolerance says, 
I have to affirm everything you think and believe as good and valid and equally valid as everyone else. And of course, Christianity is based, it is a, it is based on a revelation from God in Jesus Christ, who is the truth. He is the standard, and you can deviate from the standard of the truth. And so we do need to be aware that not everything we think and believe is right. There are issues about that, that we're just wrong about, and we need to have humility to believe that. Are you with me? And so unity is not uniformity on the one hand, but nor is, uniform, nor, is, nor is unity tolerance on the other. So then what is the unity that Paul is calling for here? I was going to draw another diagram up here. And the unity that Paul is calling for is a unity that has at the center Christ. Look at what the text says. Verse 13 Paul asks a series of questions. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether or not I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with words of eloquence, of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul says this, were you, he's like, hey, were were you, um, is Christ divided? And the answer is what? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer is no. And he says, "Was was Paul crucified for you? The answer is no. And we have to stop and think, the great Christian leaders, the theological systems, the denominations, the whatever we identify ourselves with, Paul might turn to us and say, was John Piper crucified for you? Was Calvin crucified for you? Was uh, Pope Francis crucified for you? Was Josh Swanson crucified for you? Answer to that, no. Like, were you baptized into my name? Were you baptized into the name of the Baptist church or the Catholic church or the congregational church or the Calvary Chapel or whatever? Those are not what's at the center. Paul is saying Jesus Christ is what unites us. And he's saying, yes, there's a lot that divides us. There's a lot of preferences and sensibilities. And then there's a lot of issues deep down inside that that wind up, you know, kind of tearing us apart and pulling us apart. Sometimes we'll take issues like our preference for music, and because we feel insecure, we'll need to attach a moral value to that, and we'll say, we don't just have a different opinion about music, a different preference for music, but because I like hymns instead of choruses, I'm better than you? You know how we do that in church sometimes? Or because my church is more diverse than yours, I am better than you? or because uh, my church is growing and baptizing more people, I'm better than you, or because my pastor is a celebrity or a star or writing books or, or whatever it is, I'm better. Like, all of that stuff is just wrong. Paul says, Christ is at the center. You have a lot of divisions. There's lots of stuff that kind of like do make us different, but what he's saying here is what unites us is stronger than what divides us. And what unites us, church, is Jesus. And not just that, 
what actually deals with the problem below the problem. Your insecurities that make you need to be right and have the truth and be better than these other people. Your arrogance that makes you feel like you're morally superior and better and look down on other people. The stuff below the surface, your hurt feelings and you you feel like you were snubbed or whatever, all of that stuff is dealt with in Jesus. Jesus is your security. Jesus should confront your arrogance and bring you to your knees and make you humble. Jesus is the one who brings us together. And when Jesus is at the center of our life, when he's at the center of our hearts and our affections, when he is the motivational structure and operating center of who we are as people, then what unites us will be stronger than what divides us. Now, we're going to move forward as a church in the months, the years ahead. And there will be things that sort of divide us. Like we're going to go into a facility renovation and there's going to be debate, discussion about how much money should be spent in this direction or that or why, why are we doing this and not that and how come they did this and, and all this stuff. There's going to be differences. But our commitment to Jesus is bigger and more important than the, our preferences regarding stuff like that, isn't it? And there's going to be differences in, in the worship service. And then there's going to be stuff that happens with staffing. And there's going to be stuff that, that, that happens in terms of ministry programs and leadership and all this stuff that we look at and we're like, I'm not sure, you know. And, and, but what unites us is so much bigger than what divides us. And what brings us together is Jesus. And if Jesus is at the center of our lives and we can lock arms with our brothers and sisters, whether they be in a different denomination, a different segment of Christendom than we are, if they have Jesus at the center of their life, they are brothers and sisters. And we lock arms together and we move forward together as the body of Christ. And so Paul says, look, I appeal to you that you all agree, that you all agree and have the same mind about Jesus Christ. Be centered in Christ and let everything else kind of be at the periphery that we can have disagreements about and let him be our center. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks for the church. We give you thanks for your love for us We give you thanks that you have brought us together in a family despite our own selves, despite our own intellect, our own theological acumen, our own Bible knowledge. You have brought us in, not through our own works, but through grace. And you have brought others in, not through works, but by grace. Would you enable us to stop holding on to things that make us superior? Would you enable us to be humble Christ-dependent people moving forward together with love and with grace towards each other. And we ask this in the great name of your son, Jesus, who with the Holy Spirit lives and reigns.